0: Hey, tennis fans, and welcome to yet another edition of the Southpaw Slice. I'm Ben Lewis, alongside Mike McIntyre, and our special guest for this week, Kamikshi Tandon, freelance journalist for Tennis.com, and we're very excited because we are into the second week of the BNP Paribas Open at Indian Wells. Uh, Some call it the uh, unofficial fifth Grand Slam of the season, and right now it's been a hunting ground so far for the Canadians. Denis Shapovalov, Milos Raonic, Bianca Andreescu, and Felix Oje, Ali Yassim, all still alive. And uh, I think we want to lead off on the men's side, though. And uh, for you, Kamekshi, I know you're down there covering the event. What, what's been the vibe like just from a, a media and fan perspective of, of how big this tournament is maybe relative to Grand Slams?
1: You know, a lot of tournaments want acclaim as the fifth slam. Uh, Obviously, this tournament has a very good one, especially in recent years because it's just become so huge. Uh, I think the attendance now is the highest behind the slam. Uh, The facilities are among the best on the two tours, uh, probably comparable to the slam. And I think it has one of the best fan experiences of any of the tournaments. So I think a lot of people um, are wary of giving the fifth slam label to any one tournament, but definitely Indian Wells is a good claim.
2: And you're enjoying the warm weather down there, no doubt, as we're all freezing up here in Toronto, I guess, right?
1: Oh, I... You'll be very happy to hear that it has been very cold the first week. Uh, everybody's been in jackets and shivering, so just to make you feel a little better.
2: Well, you're not going to get any sympathy, but at any rate, so. <laughs> Before we uh, get to the on-court action, there's been a lot of news this week about how uh, current ATP president and executive chairman Chris Kermode will not be continuing in the role beyond 2019. I know for a lot of people, it's uh, kind of complicated, the process that goes on behind the scenes to, uh, to make a decision like that. Are you able to sort of clarify what that process is and, and how they might have come to that decision um, all of a sudden?
1: Yes, I mean, that's definitely been the big talking point uh, off the court this week, uh, even amongst the players and the coaches and everyone behind the scenes. Um, Basically, what happened was um, you had a player meeting, I think, the day before the tournament, and then you had a board meeting just as the tournament began. And at that board meeting, they decided that they were not going to be extending promote as the CEO. Now, the the way it works, um, it's a little murky because I don't think the rules are published anywhere, but from what I hear, you you have three tournament reps, as we know, three player reps, and then you have the CEO, and for the CEO to be renewed, you need at least two votes from the tournament side and the player side, so obviously Kermode did not get that. Uh, Now, we don't know exactly what the breakdown was, but the word is that none of the player reps voted for Kamoid and all three of the tournament reps did so i think it's it's pretty obvious that where the battle lines are the the tournament's kind of want him to stay and at least the, the player reps who are on the board did not want him
2: now, from a player perspective then, what would be potentially the biggest issue they might have with Chris Kermode continuing in his role? I mean, he was a former player, tournament director, which to me seems like the perfect kind of resume for this job. What is it that's uh, precluding him from, from having their confidence to move forward for another three-year term?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's funny because uh, no one really seems to want to talk about the reason why he didn't get the vote. Um, now, obviously... The vote itself was the decision of the board members, but uh, it seems like they were quite heavily influenced by the 10 player ATP council, which elects the board representatives. So, um, I'm, and again, there's a, there's a lot of talk. We don't know anything official, but it seems like there were about five players on the player council who didn't want Kumo to stay, and they're obviously quite influential. In influencing the way
2: the board voted. Here in Canada, we had our own uh, Vashik Pospisil speak out earlier this season, who claimed that the system is broken. Uh, and Vashik's usually a pretty happy, easygoing kind of guy. So for him to have such a, a strong reaction, you know, certainly made me take notice. Um, what what sort of things could be broken, um, you know, from their perspective that that need fixing for whoever's coming in um, to follow Kermode?
1: Yeah, I think there's two issues here. One is the actual points of conflict between the players and the tournament. And the second is the way the ATP is actually set up as a partnership between the tournament and the players. So just in the first issue, um, I mean, again, it's been interesting because none of the players on the council really want to talk about uh, what made them vote that way or take their position. Um, I did have Sam Query say to me that the tournaments were very, very happy with Chris, and that suggests that maybe there was a bit of an imbalance, because uh, often when you get a three-all split on the board, it is the CEO that breaks the tie. So that suggests that maybe Kermode was leaning more towards the tournaments. Now, we don't know the exact issues that were creating conflict, um, but my perception, and this is just my perception, is that um, prize money has been a big issue, particularly you know the Masters level in the 500 tournaments. Um, The players want uh, some big increases, and the tournaments really want to give just small increases. And I think this has become a standoff. Uh, You might recall during the ATP Tour Finals, um, one of the board representatives, Roger Rashid, was actually fired by the council. And the word is that it's because he didn't vote for as sort of extensive a series of increases as the player council wanted and to me it seems like this Kermode decision is part of the same issue but if he was leaning towards the tournaments, they decided to get rid of him too
0: And this was very much what uh, Canadian Vashti Pospisil sort of detailed uh, in his written message that we saw a couple months ago. But uh, it really feels like Novak Djokovic has kind of landed front and center in in all of this. And uh, we had some back and forth, both Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal saying nobody really got in touch with them. And they had a get together, had a long coffee discussing it. Is Djokovic really the ringleader in, in all of this? And is that problematic?
1: Yes, I mean, as, as I was saying, um, the decision was announced just as the tournament began, so that was like part one. Part two has really been the player reaction, which has been uh, very one-sided. I haven't really heard any players who are not on the council say they're happy with what happened. And maybe the most interesting thing has been yesterday, both Federer and Nadal kind of stepping up and really criticizing the move. I mean, what they said was quite considered, like, you know, they never really... Take a huge shot at anything, but uh, it was quite obvious that they're missed. And anytime you get uh, better and Nadal, you know, on one side opposing you, it's it's not a good uh, <laughs> position to be in. And I think that's the position Djokovic sort of finds himself in because, as you said, he's sort of very much become the leader of the player council and has been kind of leading this charge.
2: I've heard also mention the possibility of, of players looking to form a, a union in the future as a potential answer. Uh, is it likely in a sport of individual athletes like this who are constantly competing against one another week in and week out? Is, is that even a, a realistic possibility and, and would that solve some of the issues that have presented themselves here?
1: Um, I, you know, there was some talk of a union a little while ago. But from the players I've talked to this week, I don't think that's very active anymore. Uh, you might recall Djokovic was also taking a leading role in that. Um, the word was that he sort of brought in a lawyer at the Australian Open Player Meeting and was kind of explaining what would be involved in the union. And as you said, it, it is something that would be quite complicated because you have all these different players at different levels in different countries. So I feel like that idea has been put to the side a little bit for the moment. Um, but de- definitely... Um, it's it's very interesting now because you have Djokovic on one side and Federer Nadal on the other, and so you've got a little bit of an off court rivalry in addition to the on court, so just I, a little I, bit of extra spice. I guess we tour. won't
2: see we won't be seeing Novak playing any doubles this year with the other two goats. <laughs> I
0: guess
1: <laughs> maybe not. I mean, look, I don't know if it's going to get very personal, um, but I think in terms of politics, they do seem pretty divided.
0: Yeah, not uh, not the best optics right now in, in terms of that relationship. Perhaps a bit of a divide between Novak Djokovic and Rafael Nadal and Roger Federer, but all three competing right now at Indian Wells. You are listening to the Southpaw Slice. Find us on Twitter at Southpaw underscore slice. Our guest this week, Kamikshi Tandon, writer for Tennis.com. I think it's time to, I guess, really delve into the tennis action itself because, uh, at least over the last couple months here in Canada um, all the talk has been about the young up-and-coming superstars and Felix Oje Ali sort of presented himself a few weeks ago at the Rio Open reaching a final and he's just 18 years old and now it feels like he's not even it's it's not just Canada he's being noticed it, it feels worldwide international on the tennis scale uh, that Felix is getting noticed and being taken seriously uh, what did you take from his very stunning impressive win over Stefano Tsitsipas.
1: Yeah, that was great. I think Bianca uh, summed it up the best when she said uh, he really made Tsitsipas look quite bad on court. So um, Yeah, there's definitely been a huge reaction to him, both to the way he's playing on court but I think also to the way he's conducting himself. It doesn't seem like he's that awed by what he's doing. He's sort of in control of his game, he's in control of his shots, and it just seems like he really belongs there.
2: I was uh, surprised a little bit uh, when I was looking at their head-to-head, which, you know, this was their first professional matchup against one another, but that Felix was 3-0 and also against Pass when they were juniors. And it was kind of interesting to me, listening to Pass's comments after the match, it was almost like Felix was still a little bit in his head from the junior days. I'm wondering if both of you, um, Ben, maybe you want to go first, if you were surprised as well that something from back then, which I guess isn't that far back, but uh, still affects players after they turn pro.
0: Yeah, you wonder if uh, there was a dynamic maybe that, that certainly carried over. I think even if you are the world number 10, as as Stefano Tsitsipas uh, is arriving in the second round match at Indian Wells, that there can be a psychological effect when you're going into a match uh, against a young player who's in a zone, as well as Felix Ogiali-Asim has been. Um, really, really good clay court season. And uh, Kamik, should we kind of talked about him maybe turning a corner for, for Canada, sort of, wrapping up that rubber against Slovakia and Davis Cup. And now he just seems like maybe one of the best young prospects the ATP has.
1: Yes, I think so. Isn't he the youngest player in the top 200? I'm not sure about that, but he's definitely the youngest player in the top 100. So I think that itself suggests that he's definitely the leader of the new, new wave. I would say, you know, we have the next gen, but then we have sort of... uh, Some players who are slightly younger just coming up behind them. And definitely he's the first one to announce himself, I think.
0: And uh, obviously, Dennis Shapovalov has kind of announced himself in that realm as well. I mean, we saw that announcement a couple of years ago uh, in Toronto when he beat Rafael Nadal. But he had a nice win against Steve Johnson as well. Um, It it seems to me, at least watching on television, that the stands get absolutely packed when Denis Shapovalov is playing. Is he as big a a fan favorite as he comes across, at least least watching it on television?
1: I think he's becoming one. I think Indy Wells has two fairly unique elements. One is uh, because it's not really located in a big city and you have to travel a little while to get there. It attracts a lot of real tennis fans. So, you'll notice that in a lot of tournaments, uh, you know, it's the center court that has the most people. But the first week at Indian Wells, the center court is fairly empty unless you have a really big player playing. And the side courts are packed. And everybody's at the really good matches that you and I would kind of want to see. And so, you know, people know who Dennis is, they know he's got a great game, and they like to watch him. So, in that sense, yes, he attracts a lot of attention, especially at this tournament. And the second thing is that you have a lot of. Canadians here escaping the winter so all the Canadians get a lot of support and um, I think they really feel like this is a kind of second or third home tournament
2: we, we can't forget, obviously, on the Canadian side with the men of, uh, uh, you know, the one that sort of led the way for both Dennis and Felix, and that's Milos Raonic, who had a heck of a time this afternoon getting through uh, American qualifier Marcos uh, Hiran, who, uh, 25 years old, I don't want to use the term journeyman because, uh, you know, people don't like that one, but ranked 217th in the world, and yet the American didn't seem phased at all going up against uh, Raonic, who did manage to get a break back. He was down 4-1 in the third, and, and Milos did get the victory. But uh, big news from him off the court is that, once again, he's gone and changed coaches. And I, I can't think of a player in recent memory who seems to churn through the coaches at such a high rate. Uh, were, were you surprised, Kamakshi, uh, at the fact that he's teamed up with the magician, Fabrice Santoro, of all people?
1: Yes, I was going to say, I wasn't that surprised that he split with Ivan just because they, it had been a while since they'd really done anything big but I was very surprised that he picked Santoro because you really can't think of a player at a more different game than him. But, you know, that's something that's worked for him before. Um, one of his first coaches was Galo Blanco, who was sort of a Spanish baseline clay quarter guy, and they had a lot of success together. So, um, you know, I, I think it'll be something different. And you have to give it a few weeks.
2: Yeah, I, w- certain- I wonder if. Sorry, Ben. I wonder if we're no, going to start ahead. seeing a, a, a lot more drop shots and slices and uh, <laughs> completely and, different game style. Right? New Milos.
0: Yeah, that's what I c- kind of found so fascinating about this coaching change. is we've seen a bit of a pattern in previous coaches, you think Goran Ivanisevic, Richard Krychik, uh players who both won Wimbledon and have a very similar game to Milos Raonic, Fabrice Santoro, completely different game style. But uh, maybe that doesn't matter when it comes to the actual matches uh, in terms of tactics and strategy what he can offer to Milos Raonic uh, he pulled through t- through today uh, getting past Marcus hero in a very tough three sets we had a, a bit of a surprise that I actually just watched about an hour ago and Sasha Vera looked us uh, Vera looked just completely out of sorts losing uh, to Jan Leonard Struff 6 3 one this has been a bit of a difficult 2019 for him and Cam actually I'm wondering if you think it's it's maybe a hangover from last season. It was such a long year, and he ended up winning the end-of-year finals. Or was this uh, just being sick and injured, really?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's a little bit of both. I think, uh, you know, not having much of an off season probably didn't help him. And then secondly, you know, when you have a big win like that, you feel pressure to back it up straight away. You know, I think he probably expected to have a very good Australian Open. And from his perspective, I think he feels like he's lagging. We saw something similar happen to Dimitrov when he won the year before. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I think he has had some physical problems with the ankle, and obviously he was sick this week. So uh, it's a little hard to know what to make of him right now, and I think he probably feels the same way. He looked very uh, sort of spaced a little bit following that match and impressed. I, I don't think he quite knows what to make of himself, of his play either.
2: I saw somebody joke on Twitter that because Indian Wells is considered the fifth Slam, that threw Zverev because of his <laughs> lack of Slam
0: success.
1: I saw that it was very funny. I was hoping someone would ask him that, impressed, but they didn't.
0: <laughs> oh, that would be a pretty gutsy <laughs> gutsy question to ask. Uh, but yeah, he certainly struggled out of the gates for 2019. Um, look, it's a discussion I guess we've had before, but. Uh, with all the grand slams that they've collected, the big three, Djokovic uh, winning the last three of the grand slams. Is there another player or two maybe on your radar who can put a wrench uh, in this big three and and step up and win a slam over the next year, do you imagine?
1: A new player? It's difficult. I think at the moment there's a very big gap between those three and the rest. Um, I think there's a few players that could that leap. But I think they haven't done it yet. Um, in fact, I think if you think about the biggest contenders, you might have some old names. I mean, Dan's coming back. We know he can do it. Mm-hmm. Um, Chilich is another guy who's had some injury problems, but he's become quite consistent with the slams, so he could be a potential contender. Uh, but for the young guys, I mean, obviously you have a bunch of them that have the talent. I mean, you have Zura, you have Tsitsipas, you have Kyrgios even, but they all seem to be lacking something that makes you think that they can win seven best of five matches in a row.
2: Did you just say Kyrgios? Did I hear that right? I'm just... I did.
1: I mean, we all know he has the Talent-wise, talent to win a Grand Slam. Yeah. yeah, it's true. <laughs> I think we can agree on that, but there's a lot of other things that go into winning a Grand Slam.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, he had, you just have to put him on center court absolutely every match if he wants to pull something like that off. He's not interested in side court matches against the 100th ranked player. Um, you're listening. Maybe if he got
1: a draw, which is just uh, players like Nadal and Federer and Djokovic, yeah. he could actually do it like <laughs> he did in Acapulco. It's
0: just the big three back-to-back. Only top ten players the whole road. Exactly. Uh, yeah, that's that's what he needs to win a Grand Slam title. Uh, fantastic week in Acapulco, though. Uh, did not live up to it in Indian Wells, losing to Philippe Holschrein. Uh, you're listening to the Southpaw Slice and our guest this week, Kamekshi Tandon. We will transition to the women's side. And uh, we mentioned Bianca Andreescu off the hop. And she has 24 wins this season, which just seems completely remarkable to probably everybody. And she's not only caught fire on the scene in Canada, uh, she's put the entire WTA on notice. I-, I know you've had an opportunity to do to do a story about her. What's impressed you maybe the most about this 18-year-old from Mississauga?
1: Actually, the first is her game, which I think a lot of people would agree with. She's got a great mix of variety and power. She kind of seems like she can do a lot of different things on the court, and she's a lot of fun to watch. So uh, that's really nice to see. The second thing is just from talking to her a little bit this week is uh, that, you know, she's just loving it, which is not something you always get with young players who have a lot of success like this. You know, sometimes they feel pressure, or they don't like the attention, but she's just eating it up. So I think that that's a good sign.
2: Yeah, we had her on the, uh, the podcast a few weeks ago and she was talking to Ben mentioning how, like, who wouldn't like all the attention. But as you mentioned, a lot of people that age would feel pretty nervous, I think, being thrust in the spotlight. And just looking at some of her pictures from press yesterday and she seems very comfortable, very at ease. And I think this gives uh, Tennis Canada also someone who, you know, moving forward on the female side gives us a very, um, you know, um, awesome uh, female role model and, and someone who can embrace that side of the game as well that uh, that other players maybe aren't aren't interested in.
1: Yeah, I think so. I, you know, I think we have a great group of both men and women. And I think the nice thing is that they really want to help tennis in Canada and a lot of, they I think they have very appealing personalities, very different all of them, but um I think they're all people that you know fans can really get behind and root for. So I think it's it's a very nice mixture of players.
2: I know know we're only two and a half months into the season, but is there anyone who can take away the WTA Newcomer of the Year Award Mm -hmm. or Breakout Player of the Year Award from Bianca, I wonder, at this stage, the way she's playing?
1: I think it's going to be very hard. We've got almost uh, three months, and she's definitely got it wrapped up so far.
0: Yeah, and she just seems so comfortable going deep in basically every tournament she's played, and she'll play Wang Xiang next, who is the 18th seed. The draw did open up nicely for her when Sloan Stevens had that surprise exit. But uh, so far, other than uh, getting past uh, Camelia Begu, uh, it's been dominant victories. Beat Sibolkova 2-2 two and two, and then beat uh, the qualifier Stephanie Vogeli 6-1, six 6-2. Six so dominant throughout from, from the Canadian and, and feels like certainly the top prospect we have on the WTA side. Uh, just a little bit more about the women's draw overall. I, I know we had uh, Serena Williams back for her first uh, tournament since the Australian Open, and it was a little curious the way she exited the Australian Open having those match points and then uh, blowing a, a big third set lead to Karolina Pliskova. I thought we saw maybe the match of the tournament uh, with Victoria Azarenka, which Serena won in a couple sets. And I, I have to say, I was very surprised that uh, she suddenly had to retire mid match against Muguruza.
1: Yes, it's been strange because it had three tournaments now where Serena's made very strange exits. And uh, even stranger, because she looked just fine for the first few games of the match. She was up 3 love, I think. And then it just all seemed to switch, and she seemed like she could hardly move. She wasn't serving properly. It was like 78 miles an hour. And then she spoke to the doctors and just stopped. Uh, and she didn't speak to press following the match, so you know as much as I do.
0: Yeah, I know they they called this a viral illness, uh, so I'll, I'll take their word on it, but... Uh... I guess any was was there any sense at all in the lead-up that she wasn't at her best health-wise and practices or anything like that? Because uh, yeah, I mean we I think we both saw a, an excellent, informed Serena against Azarenka.
1: Right, and as I said, you saw it even for the first three games of the match, so I'm I'm not sure what changed. But having said that, I think it's been a pretty exciting women's tournament. Um, you mentioned the Azarenka Serena match. but We also had the Venus and Quirvall match, which was a great three setter, mm-hmm. and so I. Th- I think the first week, uh, the women had some really first-class, big-name matches.
2: I think that match against Azarenka was fantastically uh, placed on International Women's Day because when you think of what both of those two women have had to go through to get back on tour, uh, you know, both coming back from, from giving birth, but also different hurdles to have to overcome. For Serena, it was more of a, a health one. And for Victoria Azarenka, it was a, a, a nasty custody uh, battle that kept her from being able to really leave the state of California for a long time and, and travel internationally. So I just thought it was great to see the two of them back, playing each other, the, the embrace at the net. At the end of that match, even though Azarenka lost, you felt like she won in some sense as well. And the two just shared that very special moment. Both great ambassadors for the game. And it'll be interesting to see how, how both of them move forward from here, uh, not having the, uh, the, the long run at Indian Wells that the two former champions would have uh, enjoyed, obviously.
1: Yeah, it was very nice timing, especially because I think Serena and Azarenka are two of the most uh, sort of conscious and vocal activists for women's rights on the tour. So uh, it's something that they were very aware of and they mentioned. And as you said, they've both had sort of issues that make them very easy to sort of look to as an example and uh, really sort of make them great stories for the public to embrace.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's uh, obviously an unusual encounter. We, we think to past years, Victoria Azarenka, Serena Williams, maybe we're used to seeing that in a final, but in this case, it was a, a second round match. I'll, I'll touch on our other Canadian because uh, we haven't got to her, her yet. Um, Mike and I, I guess, over 2019 had had been discussing how Jeannie Bouchard seemed to be making careful strides forward, uh, sort of getting out of the depths of you, you know the top 100 and and sort of moving forward with a win here and there Uh, in this case it was a three set loss to Kirsten Flipkins Um, I don't know if you can really gauge Jeannie Bouchard's mentality right now on her tennis game but it feels like she still has a ways to go to get back to kind of like top 50 top 40.
1: Yeah I mean I think we're all a little puzzled it's uh, I think Jeannie herself is but I positive thing is I think she's been going in the right direction for quite a few months now. She started to, I think, turn it around at Wimbledon. She's got a new coach, Michael Joyce. She seems to be more or less healthy, although you do seem to get these little problems with the abdominal and and, and things like that. This week, she was just saying she's been quite sick, were uh, like Zara, so mm-hmm. uh, I don't know if they I don't want to start any rumors, uh, I don't think they <laughs> caught it from each other, but uh, yeah. it seemed like a very similar kind of virus, because she did seem very sick. So you're getting these little setbacks here and again, but I do think you're starting to see glimpses of her real game again. I think you saw it a little bit in Australia. You saw it a little bit in some of the off-season com- exhibitions she played. Yeah. So I think it's maybe just a question of getting some confidence and consistency and just kind of showing that on a regular basis.
2: Actually, when you're looking at the WTA tour right now, I mean, obviously there's there's so much depth, and that's certainly the way that Ben and I uh, look at it. It's such a positive thing for the WTA tour. Who are some of the names right now that you're looking at as 2019 is is really getting going? Uh, that that maybe we can see step up and and be a, a more regular uh, force uh, moving forward.
1: Well, I guess the most obvious answer is the player is actually number one at the moment, um, Naomi Osaka. Uh, because it's been a very long time since we've seen a young player get a big win and then back it up and then actually get to number one in the rankings. Uh, I think it's probably been a long time since uh, anyone except Serena was number one and holding two slams. Mm-hmm. So I think it, it's been very positive that she's kind of kept moving forward and sort of really established her position at the top of the game.
0: It's, it's so, and it's so difficult to gauge sometimes on the women's tour because, uh, like a perfect example, I guess is Garbina Muguruza beating Serena Williams. Here's a player who you go back to her past and the level she has produced. And she's won two grand slams. Then I look uh, at a player like Sloan Stevens, who's, who's delivered on the grand slam stage as well. And been to a French open final. And she has a surprise exit to a qualifier. And then you have some other players kind of knocking at the door, like uh Spitalina's and Kiki Burton's, um, and Arena Sabalenka's, and you wonder, are these players able to take one more step and win a Grand Slam? And if they do, do they turn into, into a Yelena Ostapenko, or do they maintain that sort of top stratosphere, top five kind of play?
1: Right, I think that's exactly the question people ask themselves. And as you said, there's two steps to it. One is winning a Slam, which, of course, isn't easy. But then to actually kind of back it up and become a regular top player seems seemed even more difficult, which is why I think it's been so positive to see Osaka actually do that. Uh, one other player I think to keep an eye on is Davilenko. She's mm-hmm. another player who kind of has the power to really win big tournaments and beat the top players. And she's someone who was also talked about during that hard court summer with Osaka. So um, she, she's another person to keep an eye on.
2: actually before we uh, sort of you know, wrap this up tonight, and, and thank you so much for, for coming on board with us, I just wanted to get a sense of You know, being down there and being Canadian yourself and and the great start to 2019, I mean, I can't think of a season where so many Canadians on both WTA and ATP Tour have gotten off to such a fantastic start out of the gates. Is there a buzz that's sort of being generated? Uh, You know, are people talking about Canada in a different way so far this season based on what we've
0: seen?
1: I think definitely. I think it's been building for a little while, but I think this tournament is really helping to drive it home that, you know, every night... Uh, at this tournament you sort of walk by and most of the journalists have left and then you see the little row of like Canadian journalists still there working because there's so many players to write (laughs) about so uh, I definitely think in the press room that people are taking note I mean as I mentioned there's always so many Canadians who attend this tournament so there's a huge buzz amongst them and the thing is there's also I think a buzz amongst the players themselves Uh, we've talked about sort of Bianca being really excited about Felix's wins and watching him and you know Dennis was also talking about it being really nice to have Felix now on the tour with him and you know with the friendship but also with the rivalry that they can really push each other and I asked Milos about the great week for the Canadians today and he said yeah I mean it's been a great week and it's new and fresh but he doesn't think it's going to be uh, that way for longer, this is going to become a regular
0: thing. And that's uh, obviously the hope here that we see that prolonged type of success from uh, these young rising superstars like Dennis Shapovalov, Felix O'Shea aliasim, and Bianca Andreescu. Obviously, there's a few more who are well-established. Uh, Kamakshi, thanks so much for joining us uh, on the Boss Slice. I'll tell our listeners we can follow you on Twitter at Maxi underscore Tandon. And uh, yeah, it was uh, great to discuss, and I hope you enjoy your rest uh, the rest of the week at Indian Wells.
1: Oh, thanks. You're welcome. And especially being a lefty myself, I'm happy to be on.
0: Oh, we didn't even know that. Oh, That's wow, just that a, was a perfect guess then. <laughs> well, have yourself a, a great night, and hopefully we can chat again down the line.
1: You too. See enjoy tonight. the rest of the tournament.
0: Thank you. That was Kamachi Tandon, a freelance journalist for Tennis.com, and uh, they're covering the BMP Periba Open at Indian Wells.
2: We should ask more of our guests
0: if they're lefties in advance, just so we can pull that out. <laughs> I didn't even think of that. Um, I guess, to be fair, we, we don't know for all our guests if they're tennis players or not when they come on. We hope... Maybe that should be a basic qualification.
2: I don't even know if I qualify as a tennis player anymore. Ben, <laughs> the amount that I get out on a tennis court wouldn't matter if I played lefty or righty, to be yeah, honest with you. Yeah, well,
0: that's, that's, that's fair. Uh, luckily, I actually did get on the court this morning. Uh, interesting tidbit, as Felix oje has already begun his match with uh, Yoshihito Nishioka, Greg Rezetsky, uh who you might remember, had this to say about Felix Oje-Aliassime the other day he reminds him of a right-handed Rafa. Well, that's quite a compliment and statement (laughs) to make, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, we've seen the early clay court success – we're never. We're likely never going to see the same level of clay court success in the history of tennis ever, ever, ever that uh, Nadal has produced. But uh, that's very, very hefty praise from a former, you know, top five tennis player. I think I want to say Greg Rozetsky reached top five in his career. Maybe. Yeah, if
2: not, he was very close. I don't like talking about Greg Rozetsky because I was a young Canadian kid at the time that he jumped ship over oh, to the yes, UK. Yes, so yes. Uh, that one stung a little bit at the time because... Tennis in Canada was very different then. We didn't have the, the depth and these young players that are coming up now. So yep. could have used him then. But, uh, yeah, great, great compliment for Felix to hear. And, and I think Felix has the right mentality that he's going to take this kind of stuff In stride, You know, it doesn't seem to me like he gets too high or too low as the hockey player cliche usually goes. I think he's going to be able to handle it just fine.
0: Yeah, I think so. And uh, I I liked his quote uh, after his victory over Stefano Tsitsipas that he felt like he could impose his game on the court. And that's exactly what he did. It's it's very just startling to see an 18-year-old hit a guy off the court, like bully a player off the court. And that's basically what he's done his first couple matches. Uh, the way he cruised past Cameron Norrie and then uh, beat, obviously, an out-of-form Stefano pass, But it's still uh, the world number 10. And he's given himself another opportunity. Also, should note, just to be able to transition from clay to hard so comfortably is really impressive.
2: Yeah, I mean, he could have lost to pass and we all would have said, well, hey, he's probably fatigued and he's switching surfaces. Sure. And, uh, you know, could have used that one. But uh, here he goes. Uh, full steam ahead it's going to be interesting to see how things play out this really does feel like a slam just even from a viewership perspective because mm-hmm. here we go it's you know we're, we still have another full week of tennis to watch down there it's uh, it's quite enjoyable
0: yeah and uh Denis Shapovalov as we mentioned uh opened with a a strong win against American Steve Johnson this is a been a bit of an up and down 2019 I want to say I thought he had a good Australian Open before he ran into Novak Djokovic but uh, had a rough week at Marseille a couple weeks ago early loss to Kukushkin has uh, had a couple losses that maybe have had us scratching our heads a little bit Uh, but now this is a bit of maybe a measuring stick match next against Marin Cilic and He's lost to Chillich before. We know Chillich is a Grand Slam champion, but I think this is maybe the time to catch him where he hasn't been playing his best tennis lately.
2: Yeah, you were saying that earlier that Chillich hasn't had the results quite yet, so maybe this is the ideal time. Dennis also hasn't had the, the consistent results of late, and, I mean, he's top 30, which is fantastic considering, let's not forget, he's also just 19 years old. Yeah. But when we talk about all the Canadians in 2019 in terms of big results and, and results getting our attention his name hasn't been in that mix yet. So maybe he's due or he's going through, um, I don't know, in a sophomore slump or, or what stage he's at now is appropriate, really, but something of that nature, which would be totally understandable. Um, and, and we'll see how he responds. Um, there's only so much hardcore time left. We're going to go to the clay soon. Yeah. I know he had that deep run in Madrid last year, but I don't think either of us would consider him a, a clay court expert. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll see what, what comes of it. But uh, against Chillich that would be a real sort of measuring stick for him. Is he up for that, that big challenge? And, uh, and what kind of response is he going to show us on court?
0: Yeah, and I, I'm not sure we should anticipate a victory, but I want to see something certainly uh, competitive to show that he can compete with the the top 10 players at that level. Just a popcorn match to mention. Uh, this, you know, we, we say this all the time, that this should not be a third-round match, but such is the case when Stan Vavrink is coming back from injury, trying to build his ranking back up, and he has to face Roger Federer. These two played in the final of Indian Wells just a couple seasons ago before Stan kind of hit that wall with the uh, right knee uh, flaring up. Kind of surprising that, uh, I guess maybe it's not surprising when any- anyone has a 3-21 head-to-head against Roger Federer, but it is surprising to me that Stan has never beaten Roger on a hard court. And, uh, certainly could be some fireworks in this match. My one concern is Stan played over three hours with uh, Fuksovich the last round.
2: I, I was exhausted after that Fuksovic <laughs> match, which was absolutely incredible. The uh, range of shots, the competitiveness between the two of them, the sportsmanship between the two of them, applauding shots and things of that nature. And for those of us uh, based here in Toronto, many of us might have seen that uh, match last summer at the Rogers Cup, which also was a real late one. It went uh, two tie breaks that Stan had to win in order to win 12 Ten in the third set tiebreak, and just an electric atmosphere there too. So these two players should play each other way more often. I hope the Vavrinka Federer one can come close in terms of its on-court deliverance. Yeah. Uh, because yeah, three and twenty-one heading in. Uh, Rogers won the last five in a row. And and this will be the fourth time in Indian Wells, and obviously being on hard court, Rogers won all of those as well. Uh, but Roger doesn't have a ton of match play under his belt uh, this year, really, when you think about it. Yeah. Uh, and, and Stan perhaps is is due for. I mean, he's what around 40th in the rankings right now. Yeah. Uh, he's got we'll to have that up. He's okay. got to have that motivation to get back to a seated position. Oh, oh Certainly. Certainly. Because these draws are just killing him.
0: Yep. Yep. Um, that's absolutely right. I want to say, let me find where he's up to. He's actually, yes, exactly 40th and he's gained four points in the live ranking. So he'll be up to at least 36th. The past couple times they played too, Stan has been so close. Uh, they went three sets, uh, last summer, I believe, I want to say Cincinnati. maybe may have been Shanghai, actually. Three sets, and Stan Favrenka had looks at match points. If you remember 2017, Federer, when he won the Australian Open, one of his five-setters en route was a five-setter with Stan Favrinka. So he's gotten closer and closer. You think maybe he would be due for a breakthrough. Um, I'm not sure if it comes here, though. We'll, we'll see.
2: We'll see. You. That's right.
0: Yeah. Anyway, uh, it was great to have Kamakshi Tandon as our guest on the Southpaw Slice. And uh, this same time next week, we're going to see who our Indian Wells champions are.
2: I'm not making predictions.
0: No, no, we uh, we've stepped out of that ball game for for a while. <laughs> not comfortable enough doing that. Thanks so much for listening to the Southpaw Slice. Remember, you can find us on Twitter at Southpaw underscore Slice. Find me at Ben Lewis, SN590. Find Mike at Pro Tennis Fan. We will talk to you next time.